Hey everyone, Gil Gross here. By now you've probably heard about my new show with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy about the big three. Well, this is episode three, and it's the last time that three will be posted on the Gil Gross YouTube channel. If you want more of this show, you're going to have to head on over to the channel specifically dedicated to three. The link is in the description. I appreciate it if you would subscribe, of course. And also, I'm pleased to announce that we're now on all major podcast platforms. So you can check us out, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. And if you want me to love you more than I can possibly love you, you will leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Episode three is about the GOAT debate, but we don't exactly participate in the GOAT debate. You'll see what I mean. Welcome to 3, a show about Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. I'm Gil Gross, host of Monday Match Analysis with two outstanding tennis journalists, Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. This is episode 3. The topic is the GOAT debate. We won't be engaging in the GOAT debate per se, but we want to talk about the GOAT debate as a phenomenon, existentially. Uh, but we start with some breaking news because on the last episode of 3, we discussed Rafael Nadal's U.S. Open decision is he going to play? Is he not going to play? And we have a bit of breaking news about uh, a couple hours ago from, from the time we're recording, which is that Nadal is in the entry list uh, for Cincinnati. Amy, you were the only one who thought that Nadal was going to play the U.S. Open. Joel and I, at, at that time, and I'll, we can save it uh, to see if this maybe changed our mind. Um, are you taking a victory lap right now or not so much? Well, I, let me add a little bit of nuance to that. I didn't say I thought he was going to play. I said that it would kill him not to play. And I still believe that. Um, so, you know, if you're going to put me on the spot, again, like I, I'm not close to him. Who is? Um, so nobody knows. But if I were him and knowing him as I do, I would desperately want to play. And so I think um, by putting himself in the entry for this tournament, this opening tournament, uh, I think he's hedging his bets. You know, um, he, can, he can punt, he can wait and see. So, no, I'm not going to take a victory lap, but this is in line with my thinking, yes. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I mean, it's not as if players, let's say, okay, it's not as if players want to show up in New York a day before their first round match. That, that has never been the, the scheduling. You know, you want to practice on, on the hard courts at the Billie Jean King Tennis Center. They're going to be there anyway. So maybe it's not as much of a burden to play Cincinnati as we think, but it, it still seems crazy to me. And I'm just not ready to say um, that Nadal is going to play three weeks of hard court tennis before the clay court season with no break in between. Yeah, see, I think the, uh, the Lundy line got a run on base. Rafa, he's on that list, so he didn't officially withdraw. And I, right. I get it. And I guess and I say, we're all saying, none of us are saying yes, no. But I, I, get, I get his deep desire to want to play a major, as players do. I get his, I get his uh, uh, you know, sadness if he doesn't play. But the minute, the minute he puts his feet on that clay in Madrid, I think he's going to feel quite glad. I mean, I... Again, we're not predicting, we're just wondering, but I think the thinking, look, there's also, there's also aspects of 
of a quarantine upon a, uh, upon arrival in New York, or is that, I'm not sure has that been waived. Either way, three straight weeks of tennis in New York, which is really three and a half weeks, because again, you don't want to just show up the day before your first match in the New York Cincinnati. So I still have a hard time seeing Nadal wanting to commit to um, 20 days, 22 days in New York, and then get on a plane, and then gear up for his, you know, his core competency of Paris. I just have a hard time seeing him wanting to do that, but, but he may. And again, the other X factor, who, I don't know how fit he is. I don't know. He might've been right. He, well, there, there's match play, of course, but his body, he, he, this has been the longest rest, a good long rest. Joel, in terms of the quarantine, perhaps we should be talking or at least uh, give some, uh, give some airtime to whether or not the U.S. Open is in danger and will it even happen. So let's shift there real quick before we get to the GOAT debate. Uh, I believe athletes are exempt um, based on, you know, federal law, and I think New York is on board with that. So if you are an, an international athlete, you can travel without the quarantine. But I'm not so sure that that will be the case for the EU, and I don't think anyone is uh, 100% clear on what will, what will come of – going back to Europe. And right. that is where you might get that 14-day quarantine, which to me is the biggest red flag roadblock right now that stands in the way of any kind of normal field that we might hope for for the U.S. Open. No, we're going to see some very interesting fields at both, both of those majors, assuming they each happen. And we're going to see some way lower cutoff points. We're going to see some great tennis players. I mean, cutoff point might be 190. For all we know, it could be way, way down. And that doesn't mean, those are really good tennis players. So we might see some fascinating tennis going on at both of those events. Just, I'll, I'll just throw in that based on what's happening in professional sports right now with Major League Baseball trying to get started again and the Marlins, the outbreak, um, and then the NBA uh, is about to start and they did their sweep and nobody within the bubble tested positive. And I tweeted this. I think that what we're starting to see is a bubble scenario seems to work, seems to be effective. Um, there's a, at least a, a chance that you can contain it with, within the bubble structure. Not bubble where you're getting on planes and you're traveling and you're doing all this stuff. It doesn't seem to work. So, um, yeah, I mean, the way if they plan it right and they follow the NBA model, they have a fighting chance to get this done. That would be fantastic. But we'll see, you know, tennis with the traveling and from tournament to tournament. But yeah, the NBA thing is going to be really interesting to see. And the tennis thing, you know, also tennis, world team tennis. World team tennis has worked yep. pretty well. The only thing was uh, Danielle Collins went rogue. Kind of, she, she was like the equivalent. I wrote this last week. She's like the person says, yeah, I, I want to play league tennis. Just let me play my match. And then I won't stay for the other matches. I got to go. And so she just left. And, and I thought that was pretty unfortunate. And then she didn't really take responsibility for it either. In the New York Times interview, she pretty much said, oh, they didn't tell me I had to stay, which we all knew the minute that World Team Tennis was announced, it was a bubble. Everybody knew that. It was, and I know from people I've talked to, they, they were told it plenty of times. You're staying, you know, you're staying, you, yeah. What you have to do is stay at this incredible luxury resort, the Greenbrier. You know, one of the most so, amazing places in the world. Well, World Team Tennis dropped the hammer. They threw Danielle Collins uh, out of the event, essentially. 
and and that was that. Let's get to our main topic, which is the GOAT debate. Joel, you wrote about this um, 10 days ago or so for Tennis.com. Uh, I take it that um, all three of us, I can speak for myself, I don't particularly enjoy, maybe that's putting it kindly, I'm for the most part annoyed when people try to engage me in the GOAT debate. Um, and it seems that you are in that vicinity with me. I'm not only in that vicinity, I love that vicinity because to me, I think it, I wrote the article, I wrote, it's the wrong question. I don't mind talking about the greatest tennis players ever. I don't mind talking about why they're great. I very much believe in kind of what I call kind of a triage of A plus and A's and A minuses, but the whole, who's the best ever. And it's funny. I was talking about it with someone. I said, you know, it's funny. That happens in sports because it's competitive. It doesn't happen much in the arts. I don't hear someone say, God, I, I, think, I think Shakespeare, God, if you gave Shakespeare a computer, I think he would just knock the socks out of uh, James Joyce. You know, you don't hear that about, about how, how, you know, I think Shakespeare, if he had played Tolstoy, well, Tolstoy wrote novels. You, you don't hear that. You just hear people celebrating what makes these people great. And I wish there was more of that in tennis. I just find the whole goat thing, it's not edifying. I'm not really learning when I'm comparing. And then even now, like, then someone said to me, well, you can't compare eras, but what about in this era? And this is a person I know who loves Federer. I said, oh, now what you're saying is, who plays tennis the best the way I think tennis should be played? And even eras, you know, they don't all start at the same point. They're not the same age. They, 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 I mean, even that, even in an era, what, why, what's wrong? And it's funny, someone would say to me, well, you guys are doing a show about these three, aren't they? The GOAT? Yeah, they're, they're definitely among the greatest ever. I put them all in the A-plus list, just like I would put, you know, Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, and Will Chamberlain in that, in that list. But I just found it, and uh, I just find it kind of non-edifying and non, um, it doesn't help me raise consciousness of the people I'm writing for. It's just kind of barroom talk. Well, you know, I, I come from a little bit different perspective. Um, my mother and I got into a huge debate on text the other night about politics. And um, I realized, like, she's an ex-litigator. She lives to argue. It's, it's part of her enjoyment. And I think there's a lot of that going on in the GOAT debate. People just enjoy doing it. Um, we, us three, it's, it's almost too big for us, that kind of thing. And we too don't big? do it that it's way. Too big so or too small? This show is not going to be a goat debate show. No. It's about the three of them, but it's not going to be who's the best. And for me, one of the big reasons that it's not going to be is because it's still unwritten. They're still playing. And that's why we're doing this. I mean, even, if they, even if they had all stopped, I don't want to talk about... I'm not interested in who was, who was necessarily better. There might be some data. Hey, look, for all we know, uh, there might be some data, and one of them might win 10 more majors. And there might be some data that proves, wow, he was, this guy was better than those guys. And I guess you can see it just like the way you came to see that uh, Laver was better than Lou Hode, let's say, maybe, whatever that means. But it's really, it's just really difficult, and I just find it kind of short-sighted. But, but also, um, wow, you... you I don't know. I don't know if I'd want to get in a text argument with your mother and a political <laughs> issue. You, and arguing with your mother by text, you know, you guys don't, you guys don't want to uh, chat a little, Amy? We're 
we're not speaking right now. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's, let's, oh, let's, get, okay. back we gotta, the, let's, change let's get back to the three. Let's yeah, yeah. So, let's but, here's, here's my little pet peeve with this. And I don't want to get on Lindsey Vaughn too much, the Olympic ski champion. Um, but she tweeted a while ago when the GOATS debate was coming up, and I think it might have actually been about Federer. Um, they were talking about the different goats and different sports. And, you know, this is actually after she'd broken up with Tiger Woods. She said, Tiger Woods is my goat um, because there are lots of goats. And I, I just had to say, no, no, no. There is a greatest of all times. That, that's what the goat means. That's what it stands for. So while we may not debate it on this show, I think there probably is only one and there really only should be one it shouldn't be like everybody gets a trophy. oh no but see but i don't even think there should be any why should there be one why should there be any why did i'm, why, I'm why more with the question i'm a little why? bit more with amy i think the question becomes a lot more uh i guess fruitful once all three are done but to try to call the race before it's over now okay, you don't wait. see it as a race i understand that that it's not a race go back but, 15 years pretend these guys don't exist are we supposed to then engage it on behalf of Pete Sampras and Rod Laver? Why is it even the right question? Why, why I, does look, it fall down to for, one? No, I agree with you. It doesn't really get my juices flowing. I don't think, I don't, I don't think it's as, as interesting. And I think it becomes, look, these three have devout fan bases. And this has become a beast. There is, a, you know, tons of tribalism. You can look at YouTube comments. You can look at Twitter. You can look at Reddit forums. Most of the intelligent conversations about tennis, they, they go beyond trying to argue if Federer, you know, who's best between Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. Where I stand on this, though, where I do think we differ, Joel, is I think the slam race is really, really significant. I think that, that that's something that will pretty much control the, the narrative when, when history looks back on this. I, I, I want it well, well. The, the slam tally is a neat thing. I get it. Like the home run tally has its significance or the total points or touchdown passes or running yardage. I get that. But it's just, it, it's, it's, and some, it's, it's like someone said, wow, you so like history. I said, well, yeah, but look at, look at all sorts of history. Look at the kid like, uh, like, the, like the kid who's going to make the case, Patrick, he's Mahomes. He's the greatest quarterback ever. Well, what about, and he might sort of know Brady and the guy who knows Brady might not know much from Joe Montana. And I didn't know that much about, you know, Johnny Unitas. So it's just understanding. I don't understand why it ever has to boil down to one. And, and I go back to a, a music critic I talked to once when I, and I use this in the story, the music critic said, yeah, people want to know about who the greatest ever is because it, it shows a lack of deep interest in the whole culture. Sure. The whole culture is like, it's, it's much easier to go around and say, Shakespeare's the greatest writer, the Beatles are the greatest musicians, you know, X is the greatest tennis player, than just actually, well, wait a second, what? Or, or it's like when someone says, uh, yeah, this is the best pizza ever. Well, okay, what's number two? What's the number two pizza? It's the number three pizza? What are you doing here? What are, we, what are we really learning? So I guess that's, I'm not saying all those things are, are, are way in it. They're, they're, and they're right, there might be you know, more, more to continue. But I guess well, they just I think it's useful because one thing that I don't like is historical revisionism or lack of awareness or knowledge of history. 
So if people say that Tiger Woods is the greatest of all time, well, yeah, I mean, he has 15 majors and, and there was a guy, Jack Nicholas, who had 18. So, and, and if you ask Tiger himself, he'll tell you that he had posters on his wall with a target that said, I want to beat that tally. I want to get more majors than that guy. And that will make me the greatest. And, and Tiger, though, they were, at least with Tiger and Jack, they're playing in the same continent, except the, including the British Open. They're playing um, outside of the, um, the US Open moves, the PGA is played elsewhere. Does the PGA play elsewhere? They have different places for the PGA? Yeah. So, but yeah. still, they're kind of, it's at least somewhat of an apples to apples. It's a little bit more closer to baseball where there are certain things. However, it's funny in, uh, you look at golf, like I'd love to ask people, everyone knows about the significance of Arnold Palmer, but hardly people are aware of Gary Player. And yeah. you look at some of their records. And so it just, I get, I, I see that in golf and there's, there aren't as many metrics in golf. And the good and the neat thing for golf is the metrics for the last 60, 70 years have pretty much stayed the same. Whereas in tennis, we've had a lot of, as, as we talked, um, before the shifting goalposts, the the four slam era is pretty recent. The mm -hmm. homogenous surfaces, the thirty-two seeds. So there's certain things that make it easier to rack up, to, to rack up slams. It doesn't it doesn't subtract. That's not the point. I'm not doing this to to hoist Rod Laver or Borg or anyone else. I'm just doing it to kind of like, I want to study. I want to learn. That's, my favorite thing is to talk to great players and find out what it was like playing those great players. What, like if you talk to Todd Martin about Pete Sampras, wow, what made Pete really, really good? And what did he, you know, what made him the guy for those years? Well, let me pose this to you, point of logic, Joel. Um, do you acknowledge that these three that we're doing this show on are the three greatest in any order? No, no, I, I put them all no. in the A plus. I put them A plus, I'm not, I'm not doing the, because they play the game better. Look, I get it. I have a hard time thinking that Pancho Gonzalez would enjoy serving to Novak on a slow, hard court. But I put them all on the A-plus list. I have them all A-plus, and I have several people A-plus. And even the thing about the Rushmore, the Rushmore thing cracks me up. It's like, why? Because some sculptor decided to put four people there. We have to have four. What if that sculptor loved Andrew Jackson? Would we then say, and had five? Would then we say, is your Rushmore for basketball five? I mean, these are just based, it's kind of like, I'm a big analogy person, but I find sometimes these analogies, I would definitely say there are three Titans. There are three A-plus guys, and I would put several other people on my A-less. I think I put Rod Laver and Sampras, and, and then it gets a little tricky. Just like, sure. uh, yeah, just like, you know, you see these baseball things, there have to be only three great outfielders. You know, we could probably think of eight great outfielders. It's interesting that, that you're putting them into tiers and then you made the art comparison earlier in the show because I'm currently watching uh, or attempting to watch. There's so many of them. I'm trying to watch every ESPN 30 for 30 documentary and I'm putting them into tiers. I'm not ranking them. That would feel impossible to do. So, so it is funny that, that you've been going to, to the tier, the A+. No, I like the tri it's a triage. That, that I like and that I think is, is germane for lots of sports, you know, you look at, uh, you look at baseball, it's funny, like, uh, you know, a lot of New York 
for obvious reason, people love Mickey Mantle, Mickey Mantle this and Mickey Mantle that. So I said, well, hmm, let me take a look at Frank Robinson. You tell me who had a better career. But I also think the masses matter. There are certain unbreakable records that, I mean, for me, since, you know, don't get mad at me, Joel, but I really do think Babe Ruth is the GOAT of baseball. (laughs) Um, But then there are these guys with these unbreakable records like um, DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak, um, Ted Williams. I mean, these are Rushmore-type achievements. so, you know, tennis, we can have that too, of course. Right, and the Rushmore doesn't have to be confined to four. And Babe Ruth, you know, I think that's pretty neat that you thought that in the wake of even knowing that Hank Aaron broke his record. And, it used to, and that's cool. I mean, that's fine. I mean, I get that. Sir. And, and, and you'd put Hank Aaron on your A+, if you were doing it that way. And, and the GOAT, and at least baseball. Now, there, there's a sport that at least to a, a reasonable degree has had some consistent metric evaluations you know, 154 to 162 games. It's all pretty, pretty, pretty good. So that's not, that's not bad, though. Let's say whoever wins the Cy Young Award this year in a 60-game season, it's going to feel a little different than, let's say, you know, Sandy Koufax or whatever. But I, no, I, I, I get that. Joel, here's a case that fascinates me. I'm curious on your take. In public perception, Pete Sampras is placed on a higher level, higher pedestal than Yvonne Lendl, I'd say, generally speaking. Sampras has 64 career titles, but he has the, the 14 majors. Lendl has 94 career titles, the seven majors. To me, that speaks to the weight of that Grand Slam tally, just going back to that. Absolutely. And Lendl would concur. Okay. And Lendl would concur. Lendl would con- like, if you said to Lendl, tell you what, I'll give you, okay, I'll take away 30 and give you a Wimbledon. You know, <laughs> so, so you're okay with that? You're okay with the oh. fact that Sampras is, is kind of put on a higher and level than, than Lendl? I'm, I'm okay with the fact that Sampras finished number one six years in a row, and Lendl did that three times, that Sampras won sure. twice as many slams as, uh, as Lendl, that Sampras even, even they overlapped a smidge, and I think Sampras, I mean, at the end of Lendl's career, the start of Sampras's. So I think... I, I, I mean, oh, and no one, including Lendl, would put Lendl ahead of Sampras in a, in a thing. Just like, for example, I won't put Jimmy Connors with 109, a record 109 open era titles ahead of Sampras. I mean, Sampras yeah, is... I mean, it, to me, the metric, the overriding metric in any sport is championships. I mean, in football, you talk about Super Bowls and... In baseball, you talk about World Series. In golf, you talk about majors. In tennis, you talk about slams. I was on a podcast recently, and I was making some point about, I don't know if it was Sampras or Agassi, and I said, well, who had more majors or who had more slams? And they come back at me with like, yeah, but this person had more points or career earnings or something. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Well, in the individual sports, it's pretty cool, like Sampras and Agassi. And, and one of the things I say for Sampras and Agassi is interesting, besides the fact that Sampras had 14 majors to Agassi's eight, six years finished number one compared to Agassi's one. They were 14 and 14 around the world. At Wimbledon in the U.S. Open, 6-0 Sampras. Case closed. Now, on the other hand, now, fortunately, we're not having a show about team sports because team sports then – so you wouldn't go um, Steve Kerr over Charles Barkley, would you? 
No, but I guarantee you, you get into these debates and they will bring up Davis Cup and all that. I mean, yeah, I get that. Well, there, there are certain, it's well, there messed are certain, up. See, and so to me, those debates, I guess what I try to do, and this is what I try to do as a journalist, as a writer, is come up with a better, the better question. Come yeah. up with a better question that helps really trigger the dialogue rather than the emotional one. And we all know it. And in a way, it helped bring the show to life, not so much us as much as the world we occupy. And, and social media, the ravenous, you know, fan bases that are going to, oh, it's Davis Cup. It's Davis. Oh, it's Weeks. Yeah, you're just using the data that helps you marshal your favorite. Oh, it's, it's, it's butterfat content. That's why I like talking about us. Bingo. I'll, I'll give you an example. It, if you look at, you know, any, anyone in Nadal's camp when it comes to the GOAT debate will tell you if there were just as many clay court tournaments as there were hard court tournaments, we can extrapolate Nadal's results on clay into what happens on hard court. The conversation, and I think this is the point that we're getting to, is so muddied. There are so many infinite variables that it is an impossible question to even begin to tackle. But people do latch on to surface skill. I mean, it's like, yeah, the clay thing. It's like they, they forget that Nadal has won U.S. Open championships. Four times. I mean, it's but, just like people get obsessed with surface in the GOAT debate. I don't know why. Rightly so, I think. I think if, if you look at... If you look at the head-to-head, -head, you know, Nadal is, has a favorable record against Federer and Djokovic on, on clay and a not-so-favorable not record on, on hard and grass. Even with Martina and Everett, French Open versus Wimbledon, that was kind of the difference in the head-to-head in the -head at the end of the day. Well, Rafa has won more on hard than Roger has on clay. But, I mean, that's just sure. an argument in right. that all right we will end it there this has been great talking not engaging in the goat debate talking about the goat debate episode three um of three rate review on itunes subscribe on youtube like the video we will see you next time